This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Gavin Grimm's name is well known in the fight for transgender rights. His legal battle began in 2014 when he was just a 15-year-old high school sophomore and a Virginia school board barred him from continuing to use the boys' bathroom because he was transgender. Grimm told MSNBC how being a transgender teenager in that position made him feel. It can already be very difficult to get through life and, and avoid being bullied and stigmatized and, and discriminated against. And then to have a, a school board set this precedent for your school yeah. saying the student should not be treated the same way as other students, it's very difficult and it's very frustrating. His legal case against the school board wound its way through the courts. And finally, last August, the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals said the school board had discriminated against Grimm on the basis of sex by prohibiting him from using the bathroom that aligned with his gender identity. This week, the Supreme Court refused to take the school board's appeal, sealing the legal victory for a now 22-year-old Grimm. Joining me is Catherine Frankie, a professor at Columbia Law School. How much of a victory is this for transgender students in this country? Well, even though the court decided not to decide this case, what it is is a huge victory for trans kids, but for trans people more generally, and for the idea of federal laws prohibiting gender identity-based discrimination. Because what the Supreme Court essentially said by refusing to take this case is that we decided this case already in Bostock last year. The court ruled there that federal laws prohibiting sex discrimination include protections against gender identity and sexual orientation-based discrimination. And that case, the Bostock case, resolves the Gavin Grimm case as well in Gavin's favor. Didn't Justice Gorsuch say that the decision didn't apply to bathrooms? He did. He said we don't have to decide that today. He didn't say it didn't apply, but that that issue was not before us. But I think the rule that the court established in that case applies to the bathroom issue equally as it does to employment and educational opportunity on the basis of sex equality. And so the court, but for two members who dissented from the denial of granting cert in this case, agreed that the Bostock case applies to educational equality just as much as employment-based equality. Tell us a little bit about Gavin Grimm and his seven-year legal battle. Well, Gavin, you know, was a high school student who, as he says in his legal papers, and he said in the media many times, is a boy like any other boy and wanted to be able to use the boys' bathroom like all the other boys did. And what the school wanted to do was permit him to use the women's room or to use a gender-neutral bathroom that was one that was basically designated only for him. And, you know, if we did that to students of color and said, well, you can use the colored bathroom, not the white bathroom, or we'll make a special bathroom just for you, but you can't use the white bathroom, I think we would all understand that to be discrimination. And what the court's now saying is that's discrimination also when we create either segregated or separate facilities for trans kids. They should be treated like all the other kids with the same gender identity. The Supreme Court had agreed to hear an earlier appeal in the case four years ago, but then dismissed it. Explain what happened there. Well, I think what the court wanted to do was have the issue ripen, if you will, in the lower courts. There was a lot of litigation around trans kids' equality claims when it came to bathrooms and other aspects of their education. And I think the court saw themselves as perhaps reaching the issue a little too soon. 
a few years ago. So they wanted the issue to percolate a little bit more in the lower court. And with the Bostock decision last term, they now recognize that this issue has already been decided and there's nothing more for them to say about it other than what they said in Bostock. Let's take a step back for a moment. Will you explain the Fourth Circuit's decision and how they came to that decision? They based it on sex discrimination. There's several different ways to think about why gender identity-based discrimination is a form of sex discrimination. And Gavin argued all of these different ways of thinking about the issue, that it's a kind of sex stereotyping. If we assume that only real women are those who are also women identified biologically by a doctor at birth, or only real men are those whose birth certificates also say male. And what Gavin was arguing is that there are lots of different ways of being male. His gender identity is one of them. And to choose as real males who can use male bathrooms, only those who were identified as male at birth is a form of sex discrimination. And the Fourth Circuit embraced that argument as well as the kind of argument that we saw in the Bostock case, that any kind of discrimination against a person on the basis of their gender identity is necessarily a form of sex discrimination, really reading and updating our sex discrimination laws to conform to where we're now thinking about sex-based identity. I think this is the third time that the Supreme Court has left in place lower court rulings supporting transgender rights for students. So the issue is now settled in the Fourth Circuit and I believe the Seventh and Eleventh Circuits as well. But there's no national precedent set by the court refusing to take the appeal. If the justices really wanted to settle the issue, wouldn't they have taken the case and decided it? That's right. And so the fact that the court did not take the case and did not issue even a unsigned opinion does mean that we have different rules coming out of different circuits, but it does also send a pretty strong message that the court didn't think there was a significant legal claim in the appeal, raised in the appeal in this case. But they could have done what they've been doing in the religious liberty cases is even in a paragraph or a couple of sentences said this case was already decided in Bostock and that the lower court should apply the Bostock decision or lower courts generally should. So they could have gone that extra mile, but for whatever reason, they chose not to this time. Are there any circuits still considering the transgender bathroom issue or other issues related to transgender students? Well, I think the bathroom issue is pretty resolved at this point. We have the federal government having issued regulations that interpret sex equality protections under Title IX to transgender claims like Gavin's. But the next wave of cases that we will see and may make their way to the Supreme Court deal with the issues of transgender athletes and particularly male to female trans kids who are competing in girls sports. And this issue has been pushed rather aggressively by conservative Christian legal organizations like Alliance Defending Freedom and others. And they are making the claim that allowing trans girls to compete in girls sports amounts to discrimination against cisgendered girls. And we're seeing a split in the circuits on those cases as they move their way through the federal courts. And that issue may come before the Supreme Court in the next couple of years. So I would keep an eye on that. Let me ask you this. More than half the states have introduced bills that restrict the rights of transgender people. So which way is the trend going here? Well, the states are the sort of training ground if you will, for bills to be introduced every two years in the new legislative sessions in order to motivate a conservative base. 
So a few years ago, it was bathrooms. This year, it's about trans students wanting to compete in athletics. Every two years, members of the LGBT community are used as a way to motivate a conservative base to get out the votes, either in the midterm or the national presidential elections. And unfortunately, it's those trans students today, but it was also trans kids who wanted to use bathrooms that had conformed to their gender identity like Gavin a couple of years ago. And I think the Supreme Court, in not taking the Grimm case, has sent a message to those legislatures that those bills amount to a form of educational-based discrimination on the basis of sex. So just to clarify, you think that the trend is courts recognizing the rights of transgender people? Absolutely, the trend is towards the courts recognizing trans rights. And the, the fact that we've had conservative members of the Supreme Court doing so and taking the lead, I think, sends a very important signal that we've reached a tipping point on this issue. That doesn't mean that bills prohibiting trans rights won't continue to get introduced in state legislatures, because as I've said, it does motivate a conservative base. But those bills will be found to be either unconstitutional or discriminatory under federal and state laws that prohibit sex discrimination. Where do you see the next area of litigation outside of student rights? Well, I think there's one remaining question that we'll have to wait to see how the Supreme Court resolves it. That may be an area where there are limits on trans rights. And that has to do with people who have religious objections to recognizing transgender identity or to using the pronouns that trans people prefer. And there are a few cases moving through the lower courts now where, for instance, teachers have religious objections to using the pronoun that trans kids ask them to use. And some lower courts are saying, well, yeah, there are religious exemptions from compliance with laws that prohibit transgender-based discrimination. And we'll have to see how the court balances religious liberty rights against the rights to equality for trans people. The Supreme Court has just chosen religious rights over gay rights in the Philadelphia foster care case. So if this issue gets to the Supreme Court, how do you think it would turn out? Well, I am the director of the Law, Rights, and Religion Project at Columbia Law School, and we just issued a report on Monday called We the People of Faith. And in that report, we noted how the Supreme Court this year has completely reorganized our religious liberty law in such a way that religious liberty rights are supreme over all other rights, whether it's rights to equality, rights to reproductive liberty, and really any other right. And so I worry with this new doctrine when religious liberty claims are used as a way to not have to respect the equality rights of trans people, the Supreme Court may respect religious liberty over sex equality in those cases. But they haven't had that case yet, so we'll see. Thanks, Catherine. That's Catherine Frankie of Columbia Law School. Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg was grilled by Democratic Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal about the company's acquisition of Instagram during the big tech antitrust hearings last July. Facebook cloned a popular product, approached the company you identified as a competitive threat, and told them that if they didn't let you buy them up, there would be consequences. Uh, Were there any other companies that you uh, used the same tactic with while attempting to buy them? Congresswoman, I want to respectfully disagree with the characterization. I think it was it was clear that this was a space that we were going to 
compete in one way or another. This week, Facebook scored a victory when a federal judge dismissed antitrust cases filed by the Federal Trade Commission and a coalition of states that sought to unwind the social media giant, forcing it to sell off Instagram and WhatsApp. But Facebook's victory may be short-lived because the judge has given the FTC 30 days to fix its complaint. Joining me is Jennifer Ree, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Litigation Analyst. So, Jen, tell us about the judge's decision. Well, the ruling in the case of the FTC's lawsuit against Facebook was really somewhat narrow because what the judge decided here was that the FTC had failed to reach their very first element that they have to prove to prove a violation of Section 2 of the Sherman Act. And that first element is that they have to show that a company has monopoly power. Now, there are a couple ways to do that, but one of the ways to do it, which the FTC chose to use, is to say they have a certain market share that shows dominance. And usually 60 to 65% is enough to establish that a company has monopoly power, and that's what they claimed Facebook had in a market for personal social networking services. So the problem that the judge had with it was that the market definition was difficult. He accepted the market definition, but then said it wasn't really very clear where the contours of that market are. But he also had a big problem with this 60% allegation because he said, I don't even fully understand what the relevant market is. And the FTC has said Facebook has 60%, but they need to do better than just make an allegation. They have to somehow supply for me how they got to that 60% or how they're measuring that 60%, and they didn't do that. So they didn't do enough. What they've given me is too speculative and too conclusory to go forward with this case. So yes, this is a blow to the FTC's case, but the judge also said, but what I'm doing is dismissing this without prejudice. Well, who else is in the market with Facebook? Well, you know, this is part of the problem. The FTC said really there isn't anybody that once upon a time Instagram was in that market, but then Facebook acquired Instagram. But then on the other hand, that contradicts the assertion that Facebook has a 60% share because that suggests that somebody else is out there that has a 40% share. And the FTC didn't talk about any other competitors. So the judge had an issue with that as well and wanted more clarity on that. And you're right. When we think about social media, we think about Facebook. And the FTC did argue that entities like LinkedIn don't apply or very interest-driven social networking like a site like Strava don't apply because they're different from Facebook. But they didn't really talk about who else is in that market. As an average person looking at it, I would say Facebook has a 99% monopoly (laughs) on social media because who else is doing that? Right. And you know what, June? I think that's why the next time the FTC files this complaint, it will stick. It will surpass a motion to dismiss and the case will go forward. And the reason is because it is fairly undisputed that Facebook probably has a monopoly in personal social networking services. And really all the judge wants from them is a little bit more to explain how they get to that 60% share. And maybe when FTC dives in a little bit more to file a new complaint, maybe they do go up. Maybe they actually flesh this out a little bit more and conclude that there's higher than a 60% share here. But because it is fairly undisputed and you can't really think of any real true competitors that are like Facebook or other places consumers could go that want an experience like Facebook, I think the next time the FTC files, this complaint will manage to survive a motion to dismiss. So they have to file within 30 days. Is that enough time for them to get all this together? You know, I think it should be because they really don't have to do very much to get over the standards for a motion to dismiss. You know, they just have to say something that suggests that a claim for relief is plausible. 
So they don't have to do much. They just have to do a little bit more than what they did. You know, I'm assuming that if they think they need more time, they'll ask the court for more time, and I believe the court would give them more time. Facebook shares soared after this decision, pushing the company's market value to more than $1 trillion. But how much of a victory is this if the FTC can refile? You see, I don't see it nearly as as big a victory as some of the headlines are suggesting. And I'll tell you, it's not just because they can refile. And I do believe they can fix this complaint sufficiently to get this case going, but also because the judge made the determination in this that he was willing to think of the acquisitions of Instagram and WhatsApp as potentially violating the law, that he's going to let them go forward. If they can fix this monopoly power issue, he would let them go forward to challenge those acquisitions. They had also challenged some conduct by Facebook relating to not allowing some interoperability, and that he said they couldn't go forward and challenge. But the bigger part of it, the more important part of it to Facebook, they can go forward and challenge. So the risk isn't gone, and I think it's not quite as big a victory for Facebook as some may think. Now, in the litigation by the coalition of states, the judge criticized the states for waiting years after the Instagram and WhatsApp deals to challenge the acquisition. But, I mean, didn't the FTC do the same thing? Yeah, so it's really a weird little procedural law that doesn't apply to the FTC but does apply to the states, and it's called the Doctrine of Latches. And really what that means is that it's generally unfair to a company to go after them for something that happened many years ago. And that the states knew, it it wasn't like it was something they recently learned, but it was very highly publicized at the time that Facebook acquired Instagram and acquired WhatsApp. And the the states actually allege that at the time of those acquisitions, they were anti-competitive. And that they've had many years to go after these deals, and they haven't done that, and that the doctrine of latches would then apply Um, And it's just been too many years and they can't bring their suit. But that particular law doesn't apply to federal suits. So it doesn't apply to the FTC suit. They could also just appeal this. The states can appeal. The FTC won't appeal. They'll refile. But the states can appeal. Can the states refile? No, because the whole case was dismissed. So it's a little complicated. They can refile an entirely new suit. But this suit is dead. Their concurrent suit is dead. They can't refile the complaint. The suit of the FTC versus Facebook is still alive. Court isn't the only thing that Facebook has to worry about. There is also Congress. Tell us what Congress has been doing. Absolutely. And and I think it's, in the long run, that's the bigger risk because Congress can actually act more quickly, I believe, than the, the time it'll take for all of these lawsuits to play out. Because even if the FTC ultimately wins, Facebook would probably appeal. This could be dragged on for years and years. But there really seems to be pretty strong bipartisan interest in some kind of legislation that will ultimately tame or contain all of the four big tech platforms, including Facebook. So you have from the House bills that have been proposed that are very targeted to big tech. Um, And you have bills in uh, the Senate some that are targeted to big tech, but others that are just generally targeted to reforming antitrust laws. And most importantly, making these kinds of lawsuits like the FTC's brought against Facebook much easier to win in court for plaintiffs, not just for government plaintiffs, but for private parties that might want to bring a suit. Uh, because the hurdle right now is that it is, as we see from this current decision um, against the FTC, it can be really hard to win these monopolization suits. So, you know, there are proposals to change the law, and I do think they have traction, and I do think they can they can get somewhere and possibly get enacted. Um, the House bills, you know, really would impose 
um, new structures, new business models on these companies, new ways of doing business. I mean, they're quite intrusive in what they're looking for. I don't believe the most drastic measures in those bills can ultimately be enacted into law. I mean, there will be a long process of amending and changing and revising the current bills as written. There's going to, a lot of compromise will be needed, I think, just to get them past the House. And then, of course, they have to go to the Senate, where there might even be a bigger hurdle to some of the more drastic measures actually getting enough votes to pass. Um, and the Senate process and the House process also have to get reconciled because they, they have competing bills that are similar but different, and they'll all have to get reconciled. So, you know, we're a long way from uh, legislation as well, but I do think that process will play out. I think something will come of it, some new antitrust reforms and antitrust laws that may impact Facebook and other big tech companies. Um, and I do think that can probably happen before these lawsuits can play out. And so let's turn to Google for a moment. So it's the Department of Justice that's investigating Google. Where does that stand? Right. So the Department of Justice has an ongoing investigation. Now, it's been ongoing for quite a long time, longer than a year, and one lawsuit has already been brought. It's a fairly traditional and standard antitrust lawsuit, and that suit alleges, uh, it's still in beginning stages, but it alleges that Google entered various unlawful exclusionary agreements that blocked out other um, rivals for search. So in other words, it would pay Apple to be the default search engine on Apple iPhones. Um, and it makes its own phones. It makes Android phones. And so it would install its own search engine um, and Chrome as the default on those phones. And that it had all sorts of agreements with OEMs that they can't have the Android operating system unless you install Google Search as the default. And that case, I think, has some legs because exclusionary agreements under the antitrust law have long been, certain kinds have long been held to be unlawful if you block up through those exclusionary agreements a certain portion of a market off to your rivals, usually something over 50%. So I think that it's not a novel claim like the FTC v. Facebook cases. It's a fairly traditional claim. I think there's some precedent that'll stand behind it that could allow a court to rule in favor of the DOJ. But at the end of the day, the remedy, which would likely fit that kind of anti-competitive conduct, would be just to simply eliminate these clauses and these exclusive agreements. I don't think it would be as drastic as to break the company up or, or make it divide out, you know, take out, take its search engine away from its Android business and separate those out, because it, that would be overkill to fix that problem of that anti-competitive conduct. But the DOJ may also go after a whole different business. Uh, that Google engages in, and this is called ad tech. And it's really these software services that are used to connect up advertisers and publishers, digital advertisers and publishers online. So advertisers want to get their ads online, publishers want to get those ads, and they want to target them appropriately. Um, and there's an auction process, and it all goes through this chain of software. And once upon a time, there were a lot of different rivals uh, competing within that chain in different pieces of it. And totally over time, Google acquired all of these different businesses so that they could really control it, uh, allegedly, from start to finish. And that allows them to favor their own products, to extract fees at every single level, um, theoretically increasing prices for advertisers, increasing prices for publishers, and then increasing prices for consumers. And the European Commission is looking into this. They've just opened an investigation into this kind of conduct. There is a private action already against Google in this space, and there's also an action by, led by Texas 
um, and with several other states aligned with it in the same space. But now it looks like from the reports that the DOJ may also decide to file a suit alleging anti-competitive monopolistic practices in that ad tech space as well. Let me ask you this, Jen. What's the point of the state attorneys general filing these suits and the federal government? It seems like there's a lot of overlap and perhaps it's unnecessary or is there a good reason? You know, there is a lot of overlap and, and really I think the, the state attorneys general have, have had for a very long time the authority on behalf of the consumers in their state to enforce the antitrust laws. And, and they often have done so. And they may have different interests or a different uh, approach or, or strategy than the FTC or DOJ. They generally will work with them on the investigations, and ultimately, often, these suits all get consolidated. Um, but they want to have their own suit, June, because let's say they have a consolidated suit with the FTC or DOJ, and there's a settlement drawn, um, and the states don't agree, as happened in Microsoft. They don't like that settlement. Uh, and, and they want to continue to pursue the case or they want to pursue a different settlement. Well, then it behooves them to have their own independent case ongoing so that they can either continue to litigate and not accept the settlement that's been uh, agreed to by the FTC or DOJ or try to get their own settlement that they think is, is better for them. Final question. Do you have any reaction to Lena Khan becoming the chair of the Federal Trade Commission? I do. I, I was very surprised. By that, I, I did expect her to be appointed as an FTC commissioner. The surprise was that she was appointed chair. I mean, there is no doubt she is, you know, incredibly intelligent and competent, and really is one of the uh, pioneers of what they call the, you know, the new Brandeis movement in antitrust, pushing for changes and reform in the antitrust law um, in our economy, uh, which has been deemed to be insufficient uh, to deal with today's sort of digital markets. But she is young. Um, she's 32, and I, I don't believe has a lot of management experience under her belt. And the FTC is a large agency, and the chair position does entail quite a bit of management. So I, I was surprised by that. I, I do think it means we're going to see a pretty aggressive FTC. Um, and we know that they have an investigation right now ongoing of Amazon. So I think it likely with Lena Khan installed as chair, who will drive policy for the commission, that there's a good chance we'll see this year, um, or maybe even in 1Q of 2.22, a lawsuit filed against Amazon. Because we, all, we already know that Lena Khan, you know, it, it has been widely critical of Amazon. Thanks for being on the show, as always, Jen. That's Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Litigation Analyst Jennifer Ree. For more of Jen's analysis, you can go to BIGO on the Bloomberg Terminal. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grasso, and you're listening to Bloomberg.